Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in Parshat Mitzorah, where we are continuing uh, the conversation in the book of Leviticus about Sarat, the affliction, uh, the affection on skin or on the walls of a house or on clothing like uh, fabric or on leather, hides. All of those things uh, are susceptible to tsara'at, to this affection. And it is up to the priest to diagnose tsara'at. So there are many things that cause similar looking uh, problems. Good word. Thank you. It was a late women's Passover celebration last night. And, um, so uh, there's many things that can look like tsara'at that are not tsara'at. So it is up to the priest to declare that something is tsara'at, and the priest then declares that the, let's say it's on a house, then declares that the house is impure or the person is impure. And what's interesting, Dr. Kaminkowski points it out in her book, what's interesting is if you're going to have a house, as we're going to see, diagnosed with sarats, you anything in there becomes tame, becomes impure. So if somebody suspected they might have sarat in their house, you would take everything out of the house. So when the priest comes in and says, it's tzara'at, this house is impure, your stuff's not in there. (laughs) What she says is interesting about that is what that means is they did not understand the tzara'at itself to be contagious. Because if so, all the stuff in the house would have been contaminated by the tzara'at already. But because the priest says... Tzara'at, the house is impure, but everything's been removed. The stuff on the sidewalk is fine. So it must mean that it is the priest's declaration that makes things impure. The tzara'at itself did not communicate impurity to the contents of the house. Does that make sense? Sort of. Okay, everybody's shrugging their shoulders. Thank you, Eleanor. (laughs) Right? Or or Jews are smart. Exactly, that too. All right, so, so we have... We have a kind of mixed, mixed relationship to this idea of contagion. So, yes, it's similar to our understanding of contagion. Things can spread. Ritual impurity can spread. The concern is the sanctuary. That's the concern. There's nothing wrong. I'll say it a million times in here. There's nothing wrong with impurity. It just can't come into contact with what is tahor, what is pure. That the priests were obsessed with this. This was this was their whole career, was spending time on purity and impurity and making sure to protect the sancta against contamination by impurity. Okay, so we use the word contaminate like it's bad, but it's not in itself bad. We now here at uh, Ki are a peanut, or we are a nut free facility now. 
don't. Just don't. Just don't. Don't even. Don't even. So, we are a nut-free facility. There's nothing wrong with nuts. We love nuts. But if someone's allergic to them, terrible things happen to them. But there's nothing wrong with the peanuts. There's nothing wrong with the hazelnuts. But if you have it on your hand and touch the railing, and then a child who's deathly allergic touches the railing and touches their face, you have a problem. There's nothing wrong with being impure. It cannot come into contact with the sancta. So the priests are concerned about keeping the sanctuary pure, right? Because bad things happen when things that are supposed to be pure are contaminated by impurity. Okay. There's no moral judgment to tum'ah, to impurity. None. It is, it is just stative. It is, we've talked about it in here that it's, that it's, it's irregular. Yeah. It's the non-regular state of things. Okay. So keep all that in mind as we begin reading uh, at 1433. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, when you enter the land of Canaan that I give you as a possession and I inflict an eruptive plague upon a house in the land you possess, the owner of the house shall come and tell the priest saying, something like a plague has appeared upon my house. The priest shall order the house cleared before the priest enters to examine the plague, so that nothing in the house may become impure. After that, the priest shall enter to examine the house. If, when he examines the plague, the plague in the walls of the house is found to consist of greenish or reddish streaks that appear to go deep into the wall, the priest shall come out of the house to the entrance of the house and close up the house for seven days. On the seventh day, the priest shall return. If he sees that the plague has spread on the walls of the house, the priest shall order the stones with the plague in them to be pulled out and cast aside the city, cast outside the city into an impure place. The house shall be scraped inside all around, and the coating that is scraped off shall be dumped outside the city in an impure place. They shall take other stones and replace those stones with them, and take other coating and plaster the house. All right, so if, you die, if, the, if someone suspects that there's sara'at on the house, the priest commands that they empty the house, right? Then goes to examine it. And if it's sara'at, then the priest declares the house impure and they lock it up for seven days, right? Just like with a person, you separate the person um, and and keep checking, and in se- and the minimum is seven days. The priest shall come again on the seventh day and make an inspection. If the disease has spread, just like with a person, if it's not gone and it has spread, then you have to treat, right? You have to do, you have to address the issue. I shouldn't say treat because mm-hmm. Dr. Kamenkowski is very clear <laughs> that the priest is not trying to heal anybody. The priest does not heal. The priest doesn't change anything. The priest investigates and diagnoses and then does what needs to be done. But it's not about treating a person. It seems the house is a little bit different because you have to try to see what's go- if you can stop it. right? Because otherwise, with a person, they're going to get better eventually. With a house, if the house doesn't get better, you destroy the house. So you're looking to try to spare the house. right? That's pretty expensive for the person 
living there. Does he not call somebody else then to treat? No. So, well, I mean, in the case of a house, you remove the plaster and the stone. If the stone's been affected, then you remove the stone. So the, remember in Israel and the ancient Near East, things were plastered um, to seal against moisture and to insulate. So the, the, the stuff is scraped off and then you look at the stones. If the stones are contaminated, then you remove the stones. Now you're going to replace the drywall, right? And then you're going to see, did that fix it? Then 43 says, did you read if that already? the plague again breaks out in the house, after the stones have been pulled out and after the house has been scraped and replastered, the priest shall come to examine if the plague has spread in the house. It is a malignant eruption in the house. It is impure. The house shall be torn down, its stones and timber and all the coating on the house and taken to an impure place outside the city. All who enter? Oh, whoever enters the house while it is closed up shall be impure until evening. Whoever sleeps in the house must wash his clothes, and whoever eats in the house must wash his clothes. Go on. If, however, the priest comes and sees that the plague has not spread in the house after the house was replastered, the priest shall pronounce the house pure, for the plague has healed. Okay, so we're going to have the same ritual regarding the house that we have regarding a person. If Sarad is gone, now there has to be a purification process so that the house is now permissible. Just like the person now comes back into the camp. All right, so what happens? To purify the house, he shall take two birds, cedar wood, crimson stuff, and hyssop. He shall slaughter the one bird over fresh water in an earthen vessel. He shall take the cedar wood, the hyssop, the crimson stuff, and the live bird and dip them in the blood of the slaughtered bird and the fresh water and sprinkle on the house seven times. Having purified the house with the blood of the bird, the fresh water, the live bird, the cedar wood, the hyssop, and the crimson stuff, he shall set the live bird free outside the city in the open country. Thus he shall make expiation for the house, and it shall be pure. Okay. So we're getting an interesting word used here about the house. So we're getting the word kiper here about a house. It's kind of an interesting idea to make atonement for the house. It's a very interesting use of the word kiper. This is not generally how we understand the word kiper um, because presumably a house cannot sin. So it's a very interesting uh, concept. So um, possibly it's that there was another use of the word kiper that fell out of use or favor and that, um, that we've lost what that sense of kiper is. Um, but this idea of kapara for a house, you know, for an object is, is interesting. But kiper generally has to do with sin. But sin, so in other words, you would usually use kiper with a person, right? That the would you? yes, that you you the kapara is for the person who has committed a hate. 
it, a house can't commit a hate. So what does it mean to atone for a house? Right? You know, it's kind of an interesting... Well, and yet that's left in our society in a way. Because if you try to sell a house and a murder has been committed there, mm-hmm. you have to declare it. I mean, it's as if the house is contaminated by having had a crime. And, and all of that makes total sense to me. The use of keeper does not. Right. right. It just does not... It's not a word we would usually see. To purify it, yes. To, you know... To an exorcism of sorts, yes. But this word "keeper" is an int- this is an interesting use. Take, uh, what is the herb? Sage. Yeah, smoke. <coughs> smudging. In ancient cultures, they believe objects had souls as well. Maybe it's got to do something with that. It's possible. We don't know that ever. In um, I don't know of any uh, Canaanite belief system that would have said objects have souls. I don't know. Um, but but it's clearly a remnant of something that we don't have anymore. Um, this use of kapara. <clears throat> it, it strikes me that a house doesn't develop a fungal infection. I mean, it does in certain situations, but it's got to get there. And frequently that's people that are... Uh, of course. In it so that, no, of course. So that the issue, the issue is... Um, yeah, I'm thinking mold. Sure. So, right. So it's not disconnected from the behavior necessarily of the people who live there, but the people would be the ones who needed kapara, not the house. Right? The house is an innocent bystander. (laughs) Right? Elena? In this room? (laughs) Is there such a thing in this room? priest's function here confuses me. He's almost like an inspector initially. That's what the priest is. But but on the other hand, he then does the ritual. They're not separate. Only a priest can diagnose sarat, and only a priest can perform the rituals that brings one back into a state of purity after having um, dealt with sarat. Are there other instances where priests are inspectors? It's a building inspector. They inspect. (laughs) They inspect animals, right? The animals can't have a blemish. Sure. So. Well, that's what we're talking about, right? That that, yes, they they diagnose sarat. So, it in fact, I mean, often that's what the priest is: is someone whose job it is to inspect everything, to make sure everything is proper and everything is done in exactly the prescribed way. This is but he serves as a kind of governmental overseer in some way. Not sort of. There is no difference between religion and state in a theocracy. Ancient Israel was a theocracy. You don't have anything that's not religious. That's the state. So he's not like a government. I mean, he is an official of the system, for sure. and one of the things that Dr. Kamienkowski lifts up, this is um, this wisdom series that someone asked me about last time. The wisdom commentary series is feminist, uh, it's feminist commentary. Uh, and so Dr. Kamienkowski did the volume on Leviticus. So it takes all of the feminist criticism of the text and, and, how, and she, the point of, the, I, read, I read that the point of the commentary is to have those feminist interpretations be in dialogue with one another. That we now have enough feminist criticism that we can now have them comment on each other's theses 
right? Um, and so it's it's an explanation of that, which is which is wonderful. Um, but she's saying that the the idea that the priest investigates the person and keeps coming back and looking and checking, right? says something about the fact that it is not de- someone is not devalued because they have tsara'at. The priest continues to inspect. And um, it, what comes right after the ritual? What do you have after that? Uh, eruption. Eruptions. Male eruption. When any man has a discharge from his member, his discharge makes him ceremonially unclean. All right, so... But we have to figure out what kind of discharge. Really? Really. <laughs> okay. Really. And, and so the priest is inspecting. The priest, that's my point. The priest is inspecting this. The member, the issue from the member, is it contaminant or not? An eruption on the skin, um, discharge from the vagina. Is it normal? Is it not normal? Is it communicating sara'at or not? This is up to the priest to diagnose. (laughs) Becky is like (laughs) freaking out over there. What do we make of this? What what do we make of this today? So so for me, I think one of the things I just want to make sure that that we cover is that the priest was very involved. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? The, <laughs> yeah, right. Thank God the rabbi role has changed, right, since ancient times. But the, the, the priest is very intimately involved in people's lives and in their bodies, right? Their, their bodies, bodies are bodies, and bodies all do the same thing. The question is, when is it an issue of tum'ah, of impurity, and when is it not? But the, but the fact that the priest is the one who checks says something about the fact that, that the human being and what happens with our bodies is a matter of, of holiness and is relevant to that, but in a very static way. Once we move out of P, the P material, we're in the P material now, we're going to get the H material. What's the H material? What's H? The holiness code. Once we move into the holiness code, Dr. Kamienkowski points out, actually gender stuff and what's normative for gender stuff becomes more stratified and rigid. This, the P material, whether it's a vagina or a penis, you're dealing with the same problems or challenges or issues, right? So it doesn't matter. A woman, yes, is contaminated for longer because she bleeds for longer. Okay, but some people want to lift that up and say, so she's closer to disease already, right? Some feminist criticism says that's way closer to disease than when a man ejaculates at night and he's only impure till the next evening. But other scholars want to say, no, it's the you know it's the blood communicates more tumah, but that that's not a bad. There's if there's no moral judgment to tumah, then what does it matter how long the period is that you're contaminated, right? That you're irregular. It doesn't matter if you're not going to put any judgment on it. It only matters if you say okay, well because it's a longer state of impurity, it's somehow worse. What are the limitations if you're impure though? 
So if you're impure, you can't have any contact with the sancta. So you can't eat sacrifices. You can't be in the sacred precincts. So some people want to argue women would have been regularly excluded from eating meat and having access to meat based on the fact that they menstruate every month. They're going to be impure for, for seven days after their period. So half the month, she's impure. And so she is somehow like removed from the you know, regular stuff, including eating meats, which was, of course, desirable. Um, but Kamienkowski says, well, if you take uh, men having wet dreams, masturbating and having intercourse, hello, they're going to be contaminated a lot of the time, too. They don't say. Chana. My question is, who calls the priest? <laughs> the person. The person. The person contacts the priest because they suspect Sarat. Or there's been something. You, I mean, you don't have to summon the priest for everything. Only for, for a concern about Sarat. If you have sexual intercourse, you're just impure till the next night, period. Well, I mean, it's just, everyone knows that. It's like, duh. Okay, I'm tum'ah. Like, I can't eat meat. Today, I can't be in the sacred precinct today because I had intercourse last night. So you don't need the priest for that. You need the priest when you have to diagnose what's happening. Um, and only the priest can declare it's a ra'at. Only a priest. Shauna, you had your hand up? You're good? You're good? Linda, you're not? How do you discuss this with a 13-year-old? I don't. I don't go into this with a 13-year-old. I talk about Tzara'at was a, was a skin affection, and the person was therefore impure. And in a system where pure and impure, those categories really matter, the person was outside the camp in a state of otherness until they are brought back into the camp. So like I said last week, I talk a lot about what it means to bring someone back into the camp. What does it mean to acknowledge what's happened for someone and then have an important person like the priest perform a public ritual that brings that person back into the community, back into regularity, because we don't do that anymore. We don't have a way to do that. It seems to me that with everything going on in the human body and the human community, the priest would not have time for anything else. The priest is very involved in people's lives, right? All the time. I feel like we've evolved and we're not doing everything. So I want to be careful about <laughs> about using for for me using language that is somehow judgmental about another tradition. Yes, it originates here. The priesthood originates here. But, I mean, but there's other ancient Near Eastern stuff that, you know, that that and, and in Greece and Rome, there, there's other. The priest and priestess role has been part of re- human religion from the beginning, for all time. The shaman, the right. So there are people who were recognized as having a certain kind of, you know, access to a certain kind of power. Let's say. Um, and the priest, so we have it, but but every think about a, a Greek temple. There's a there's priests and priestesses everywhere, right? In the in the ancient world, so it's not just here. 
And for for Catholicism, they that continues to serve an important function for them. That the priest has, by virtue of being ordained and choosing this life of celibacy and poverty, celibacy. <laughs> um, yeah. of course, yeah. priests are celibate. No, we're about Catholic priests. Catholic oh, priests. So, um, but that by choosing that and by living that way, they have access to, right, things, transfiguration, of the bread into body, right, and wine into blood, as well as the ability to provide for someone the means through which they can achieve forgiveness, right, through confession and then whatever, uh, you know, they need to do to, to address that. That continues to serve people. And I've told you, I'm incredibly jealous, often. I'd love to go to confession <laughs> and have someone say, here's what you do, and you're, and you're done. I would love that. I would love to feel like someone actually affects a reset. I would love that. We don't get that. But, but, but people who, who have that find it very, very powerful. And I... I totally get why that's awesome for them. Is there a version of the priest today in the other than the non-Orthodox community? Does anything like that exist? I would assume that someone who, the rabbi who declares kashrut, is a version of a priest. Is, is that right? You know, it, it's a very different function, but I think the, the many human societies have... But do the Jews, do we, do we form conservative... No. Now, there's no version of a priest. No, no. But ask some people, and they will say that you you give an authority to the Rebbe. Right. You know, they eat crumbs from the Rebbe's mouth. When crumbs fall from the Rebbe's mouth, the students eat them. You know, people laid. The, you know, you can see people in Israel laying on the graves of great teachers. Right? They lie down on the grave to kind of so absorb some of the. This whole notion has been abandoned by the modern Jewish world. Yes, yes. As soon as the destruction of the Second Temple happened, that's it. It's gone. But they still influence people's lives. Look at the measles disease. But does, I was going to say, there's regularity. For sure. For sure. Well, one of the, I always have trouble with this because to me, I'm sure to a lot of people, it is so far to think that there is yeah. a space that is so holy that. The world will explode if impurity goes there. Yeah. We tend to look, particularly Reconstructionist Jews and progressive Jews, God is everywhere, and, and a sanctuary in, in a synagogue is a special room, but we don't have a sense that if you go in with a T-shirt, for example, there'll be some huge calamity. But these people actually believe that. Yes. I mean, there was, there was, a, yes. there was a completely other sense, and it seems to me if you really believe that that was going to happen... <coughs> then all of this really makes sense. Right. For us... And it's important. For us, it doesn't make a lot of sense because we say, well, you know, someone walks in with a T-shirt, just tell them to leave and tell them to dress properly. I'm, I'm but I can tell you there are people who say a cuss word in there and they go... <gasps> right. Yeah. They, they think it's They freak that they've cussed in front of the Torah. Right. And in the sanctuary or in front of a rabbi. I cannot tell you how many people. Like, say something that normally comes out of their mouth and they're like... 
I'm with a rabbi. You're so shocked. I shouldn't say that, right? And so, I mean, we, yes and no. Like, for sure, it is a very different worldview than ours, which I love because I find it very interesting. I'm, but that's, I'm a cultural anthropologist, what can I tell you? I think it's fascinating. I love this stuff. Yes, it's very foreign, and really, is it? Like, we we really do have a sense, and to a really dark, Place in some of Jewish life, right? If you're if you're in a house and the, you have a Torah scroll, do you save your wife or the Torah? Do you know what the answer is? I don't even no. want to ask. So we go to really dark places with our ideas of what's holy and that's not reconstruction. It is Make not reconstructionist <laughs> Judaism for sure. Um, but uh, right, but our. But our ideas of what is sacred, you know, and then what one do, what one does to protect, right, the sanctity of that is, you know, people died al kiddush Hashem, right? People, you know, eat pork or be slaughtered. People chose to die, um, right, rather than transgress what they felt was a holy practice, and I think there's that human that human instinct, right, about words like holy or not holy or sacred and not sacred and and people get really crazy um, commitment to right not transgressing could israel the wall or the yeah the, the tomb of the patriarchs 100% 100% how crazy we get, get crazy. like with that stuff george i want to just comment on the impurity of women <laughs> Oh, you want to comment on the impurity of women? Okay. Good luck with that. Don't start that way. I thought that was a good attention. Well, you you succeeded. Extreme Hindus in India, there is at least one Hindu temple that has refused to allow women between the ages of 15 and 50 into it because they are impure. Right. Sure. This is universal. Yeah. And it's gone to the Supreme Court. I don't yeah. uh, in India. I don't know what's Yeah. It's this is we know this. We know this. But but I want you to understand men are impure as well. I really want that to be clear that men were impure in Judaism. <laughs> When we were to go to a cover state, um, say the more conservative Orthodox uh, uh, synagogue and so forth, would they explain the partio the same way that we are hearing it uh, today, or would they kind of be around the bush? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, for, for them, I mean, it's, it's easy to just say because there's no temple, we don't have to worry about Tum'ah and Tahara, but once upon a time, this is, right? I mean, I don't know that they go into a whole lot of analysis, right? They're going to go where Burt Kleinman wants to go, which is, this is caused by behavior like slander, like gossip. And the, the rabbis go crazy with how they read slander into Tzara'at, and that is the disease, because if you'll remember, Moses says to God, you've got the wrong guy, you picked the wrong guy. And so God says, okay, now put your hand in your tunic. And he pulls it out and it's leprous. Now put it back 
and it's not. And then Miriam speaks about Moshe and Aaron. I mean, Moshe. Miriam speaks to Aaron about Moshe having married a Cushite woman, and Miriam is stricken with tzara'at. So the rabbis say, okay, all of these are, are incidences of speech. And so it is speech that is the issue that causes tzara'at. And so that's where traditional commentary goes, is that they immediately translate this as lashon hara, evil speech, gossip, whatever, and then the rest of the lesson is on gossip and not on, right, not, uh, not on tzara'at. Um, and I'm someone who sometimes goes there, you know that. But often I like to skip over all that stuff where it's like, really? Really? And, and what is left of this? And I'm going to read you, um, as I do each time we come to this Parsha, I'm going to read you um, Tirza Firestone's piece on this, which is, to me, really powerful. Um, okay. Yes? I, I think the important part of this isn't focusing on the Sarat. It's on the process by which so that's that's where we're going to go. I saw another hand. No? All right. Yes. Just a small comment. Okay. Uh, when men are impure, yes. are Jews religiously obligated to wash after, for example, a wet dream or a sexually intercourse? Because that's the practice in Islam. So, no. Not anymore. Okay. But once upon a time... Yes. When the priest goes out of the question, you know, question in Islam, that's what people are obligated to do. Right. That's how you get pure again. Right. So, but, but to be clear, men still do do mikvah. Um, to like before their wedding, they do it before Pesach. They do it right. Some some people who are seriously into it, you know, before Shabbos. Um, so there, there's there's still this idea of mikvah being a purifying process, but there's not the relationship to Tuma and Tahara, except of course with women, right? It gets retained um, with women and menstrual blood, but, um, but there's not the same idea of Tuma and Tahara that requires it all the time, you know, to be hypervisual. Can go into the same mikvah? I mean, not at the same time, I know, but can they use the same mikvah? I don't know. Is there something about ritual purification of conditions? Yes. So in a way, we talked about how the house can't have a soul and be guilty of all the dishes. It's, uh, uh, guilty is different. <laughs> it's different. It's not kapara. You, when you toivel dishes, it's not kapara. Right? That's, that's my point. You don't do kapara for dishes. What is, it? What is the rationale for the dishes? Right? It's kashrut. Right? You're... You're making sure it's a, it's a pure and clean surface on which you're going to now serve food that is kasher. So you don't want any possibility of something about the plate, because you don't know where it's been. Um, you don't want any possibility that it's going to trace your food. And right? the same with the burners on the top of the range. Of course. Everything. Everything that comes into contact with your food has to be it has to be kasher. Everything. Right? Unless you're in a reconstructionist synagogue. <laughs> um, all right. So we're going to go to this. Uh, we're going to go to the ritual. So we get all of these emissions. Yes. Mm-hmm. And discharges. No. Because it purifies. Whoa. 
But you don't go in a mikvah to, to wash. You've got to no, be clean, right? Right. Right. Mikvah. Right. Okay. Um, 32. No. I, I want to go to the... Fifteen. Where's our ritual? Yeah. Of a man? Oh, maybe maybe we're past. When a man has no, we're past. We're yeah, because we're past Sarat. Right, because we're now we're now just dealing with regular impurity. Mm-hmm. So for regular impurity, you don't need the ritual. You only need the ritual for tzara'at. Yes. But where where's the tzara'at business? Fourteen. Is it fourteen forty-eight? I don't. I, I don't have the text in front of me. Fourteen forty-eight. Fourteen forty-eight. This is the house. I don't want the house. You want people. I want people. Okay, what do people want? Restoring ritual purity. Yeah. Okay. When I've got 15, 15, uh, 15 what a man does. But is it sara'at? Is it is it the yeah. hypsum, hippo, crimson? Oh, no, it's water. Okay, I want the ritual for bringing the mitzora back into the camp. Here. All right. Here we go. 14. 14. 2. We're going before this. 14. 2. The beginning of Mitzorah. Ah. This is not the third portion. Correct. We, the third portion, we did the house. Right. All right. Going back to a human dealing with Sarat. This shall be the ritual for a leper at the time of being purified. When it has been reported to the priest, the priest shall go outside the camp. If the, if the priest sees that the leper has been healed of the scaly affection, the priest shall order two live birds, cedar wood, crimson, and hyssop to be brought for the one to be purified. What did we just read about the house, about the diagnosis? But what, what was the diagnosis on the house? Do you remember? What does it look like? Red streaks. What streaks? Red. 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 Ah, exactly. What's being brought here? Blood. And stuff. And the hyssop is green. This is the antidote to what you've diagnosed, right, that someone has recovered from. The antidote involves crimson and piss up and these are it's just unusual the um this combination is unusual so it seems that the crimson stuff and the cedar wood is also a reddish mm-hmm. wood mm-hmm. that the color of what you're bringing and the blood of the bird right the red is important what's the stuff what's the crimson stuff uh, stuff that's crimson. <laughs> <laughs> the stuff that's crimson. Uh, what verse are we in? Uh, crimson stuff is four. four. Okay, so I'll give you, I'll give you uh, Dr. Kaminkowski. The next substance 
Shani Tolaat means literally scarlet of a worm. The phrase may derive from an insect that was used as a color extract. Again, like the cedar wood, the red color of the material is key. All right. So, so the, the priest shall order one of the birds slaughtered over fresh, over fresh water in an earthen vessel. So you're going to water down the blood. And he shall take the live bird along with the cedar wood, the shani tolaat, and the hyssop, and dip them together with the live bird in the blood of the bird that was slaughtered over the fresh water. He shall then sprinkle it seven times on the one to be purified of the eruption and effect the purification. He shall set the live bird free in the open country. The one to be purified shall wash those clothes, shave off all hair, and bathe in water, and then shall be pure. Yes? Yeah. All right. The other thing we see... like a treatment, though. Ah, ah, ah. No, the person is cured. They are cured already. The priest determines that Sarat is gone. Sarat is gone. The priest is not, this is what she really stresses. The priest is not treating the Tsara'at. This is a memorial to this. The Tsara'at is gone. The person now has to be purified. So the priest, it, what the priest is doing is purifying the person who has recovered from Sarah. Right? Right. Okay. So the... So there basically is no treatment. Let's go to... Uh, right, there isn't, because you recover. You don't need a treatment. You recover. Right? All right. The priest shall take, look at verse 12... Uh, uh, purgation offering alright let's go to 14 because now the person is pure the person's back in the camp but the person has to wait to go home you can't go home right away then you're going to bring a sacrifice the priest shall take some of the blood of the reparation offering listen carefully and the priest shall put it on the ridge of the right ear of the one being purified and on the thumb of the right hand and on the big toe of the right foot. Where have we seen this? Where, have we seen this? Where do we see this? When you're consecrating the priest. Therefore, what can we conclude from this? Everything will be right. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. Everything will be right. Everything's going to be all right. If you're using the same ritual that you use to consecrate priests, clearly, Sarah is not something to be judged as having to do with moral conduct. And I think that that is a purposeful move, right? To say, we're going to use the same ritual that we use to consecrate priests to bring the person back from Sarah. So it may be an indicator of intensity, 
that what this person has been through is intense, right? And so the transition from moving from having gone through that to being in a state of regularity requires like some kayak. Like you, you need some, something powerful that's going to that's gonna make that transition. But I think it's not accidental that this is the same ritual used for the priesthood because it's saying that person deserves the same regard as you have right for the priest who's changing from being a lay person to being ordained as a priest what was that word you used koya koa koa strength power okay yes hebrew or yiddish both it, it gets used in my house generally as part of the phrase, I don't have the koyach. <laughs> That's generally how it's used in my home. I don't have the koyach to do that. No. No. Yashar koach. May your koach be yashar, straight, upright. All right. Did Eleanor bring something? She didn't. No extra charge for the language lesson. Uh, no, no extra charge. It is all included. There's something very equalizing. Something what? Equalizing. About? About using the priestly stuff for an ordinary person. Yes. It's like, um, you know, you don't need to be in a whole separate category. You, too, have importance. That's right. And I think that's an important move, right, that the ritual makes that you are you are deserving of the same ritual that priests get in affecting your transition you're not going to be from layperson to priest but going from someone who's recovered from sara'at to being a member of the community again and i think yes there is a there is a democratization right of that is really important in that in that move also, I think well, 100%. Well, the timing is different. Isn't the ritual the same for men and women as well? Yes. Would it show that the priest has no exalted status? He's just got a job. Mm-hmm. He's got a job. I mean, you, you could argue the priest not only is does not have an exalted status, the priest is always at risk. Mm-hmm. The priest has taken on the responsibility for Tum'ah and Tahara for the people. Right? The priests and Levites are always at risk. This whole process only applies when Sora's diagnosed. Yes. It doesn't happen every month. No. No. What we just saw is only Tsara'at. The ritual we just saw is only for Tsara'at. So the symptoms of leprosy and Tsara'at are apparently the same. It is. Leprosy is Tsara'at. But leprosy. There's no spontaneous recovery. That's why I've said they use the translation in order to communicate the horror of leprosy. We know it's not Hansen's disease. Right, right, okay, Hansen's disease. But when they translate Sara'at as leprosy, leprosy means Sara'at. My question is, what if, in fact, it's Hansen's disease? It's not Hansen's disease because people recover. Well, no, yes, but the... My point is when the priest comes in and sees, I assume something is somewhat similar, which I don't know, but how does the priest then, if the person recovers, it's Sarat. 
if the person does not recover, what then happens? Because we take the know. house down. <laughs> the ha- They're what? dead. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know what the question is. I'm, I'm confused about the question. Okay. So I don't think leprosy presents the same way Sarat does. Okay. Yeah. I, I think Sarat looks different. Yeah. But, I, but people obviously got confused a lot of the time because the priest had to come in and look at it, right? So, so people are confused often. So how does, how does the priest know this is Sarat? I don't know. Yeah. It was more like psoriasis or eczema or something? I have no idea. But, you know, ask a bunch of dermatologists and they have a very good time <laughs> looking at the symptoms and discussing this. They, they have a very good time. But I'm like, whatever. They know it's Sarat. They diagnose Sarat, right? They check. If it's something terminal, I guess the person died. Over here who are not Sarat but are still have symptoms. So I think were there doctors at this time? Uh, I mean, I have no idea. Let me put it this way: If it's bugging you, there's somebody's got something you can put on it, right? <laughs> right. Of course, there's women who were healers. There, of course, they had ways of treating stuff. The reason it's here in the book, we don't talk about the other stuff because it's not important. The, what's important is, is it Sarat? Yeah, for this one. <laughs> you, you know, if it's something and you're afraid, oh my God, you know, you get the priest. And if the priest says it's not Sarat, okay, then you put ointment on it, you wrap it up, you do, you know, you do whatever you do. The concern is, is it Sarat? If it is, we have a very serious situation. But to George's point, with the house, if the priest comes back, and they, they take away the stone and the plaster, and then it still comes back, they tear down the house. Right. So I, if, how I heard George's question is, what if a person has Sarat and it doesn't go away? Then it's not Sarat. Sarat. Oh, Sarat, by definition, That's goes my away. point, yes. Okay. Oh. That's the point. By definition, it, it goes Sarat. away, okay. yes. If it doesn't, you die, and it turns out, oh, guess it wasn't Sarat. <laughs> right? That's good. I guess it went, right? It's good, but he's dead. It was something else, right? All right, so what I've given you is um, from... Oh my gosh. <laughs> so this is what, the very big stretch there. Sarat, uh, psoriasis. Oh my gosh. What I've given you is from what about the Institute. <laughs> there's, there's ways they cannot prepare you for teaching Jews as your career. Um, so I've given you from the Institute for Jewish uh, Spirituality the Bert Kleinman move oh. from <laughs> biblical tzara'at to motzi shemra, one who brings on someone else a bad name, which means a gossiper. Um, and then some of the rabbinic, uh, the ways that the rabbis have treated um, the relationship of tzara'at to lashon hara, uh, and then um, some intentions about how we in light of this Parsha, pay attention a little bit differently to our speech and the use of speech uh, and how damaging it can be and how it can spread right, terrible things. Um, you know, there's that parable that the, the rabbis have about somebody who has spoken ill of someone else and, um, and the person says, how do I fix this? And the rabbi gives them a pillow and cuts the down pillow open and you know, does this and all the feathers go everywhere and says, okay, go get every one of the feathers out of this pillow 
right? That came out of here, and that's how you fix this. Well, you right? Essentially, it's too late. It's gone. You can't. You can't take. You can't get back what other people now have passed along, and um, that it's incredibly damaging. The way we spread things about each other is incredibly damaging. We've we've worked through that um, before here. Um, so I want to read you t- uh, two pieces. Or one one that I love. This. Um, you know how I love when they play with Hebrew. I love it. It's so fun. Shut up. Did someone just laugh at <laughs> So the priest goes to look. And if the priest sees that it's nega, how do you write it? How do you print a gimel? Why am I printing? <laughs> All right. So nega, which is the affliction, the the you know, kind of the damage, right? So what is the teaching that that's, you know, that this is, this makes it, this is the thing that lets you know there's sara'at because it's disrupted this, you know, the skin. It's, there's something bad, there's something bad there. Um, and so there's this beautiful teaching that says, um, this, this is ayin. What does ayin actually mean? This is the letter ayin, but what does ayin actually mean? I. Someone went went to Kabbalah. Not in Kabbalah. In regular parlance, ayin is I. And so they're saying, really, because this is is divinely given to us, it can't just be that this word is used because that's the right word for the skin inflection. Rather, there's a deeper meaning. There's a deeper teaching. And the teaching is, it's all about our perspective. It's about how we see. And if, you ha- if you're seeing from the wrong end of things, it presents as nega, an affliction, something bad, something terrible. But if you see things in the right perspective, if you shift the perspective, what have you got now? Mm-mm. All three... Uh, what do you have now? Oneg. What is oneg? Joy, pleasure, good things. It is all about where your perspective is. Where's your ayin? Right? If you're Sheldon, work with me here. <laughs> If your perspective is backwards and messed up, you're going to always see nega. But if you change your perspective, you can find so often oneg. Joy, right? Pleasure. All of this is included, people. It's all included. (laughs) No extra charge. (laughs) So... That is uh, one of my one of my favorites. Um, and uh, let me read you Ruth Brin uh, of Blessed Memory, the poet uh, Ruth Brin, who says the following: Mitzorah, delight. Long after the temple was destroyed and the sages had substituted prayer for sacrifice, the people remembered the rites of purification. The mothers in the ghetto would wave the holiday bird over the heads of their children to atone for sin and evil. 
We read and we remember and we wonder. How shall we rise above the circumstances of our lives as the living bird rose over the open field? How shall we find words of prayer as pure as the trill of the wild bird singing? Nature demands of the bird flight and song and how beautifully he sings in the branches, how swiftly she flies the summer skies. O Lord, our God, may we do our tasks as well, whether we are required to achieve or to pray, to study or to sacrifice. As we delight in the swoop and glide and ascending arc of the flight of birds, so may you find delight in us when we strive for our own human achievement. Rabbi Tirza Firestone, we are all the mitzorah at one time or another. And so what happens? We literally have to go out of the machanet, out of the mainstream. There, we are followed by the Kohen, who for so many of us is rabbi or teacher, beloved shaman, priest, friend. So she's writing about her teacher, Reb Zalman. She says, what we read in our Parsha really is about that kind of a healer and a healing that has happened to so many of us. These are our shamanic rituals. And the one that we have found for coming back into the camp to bring our riches back into the Machaneh has to do with two birds, a cedar branch, crimson wool, and hyssop along with running water. Birds are a symbol of the soaring human spirit, the spirit that's alive within us. Notice that we take two. One is saved and one is killed. Why is that? The one that's killed has to do with that part of our spirit, which has to be exchanged, sacrificed, so that we can fly free. In order to soar, in order to really have mochin de godlut, expanded consciousness, some part of us must be sacrificed. Each one of us knows this in our own personal lives, and we certainly know it as a people, as a nation. On the way to being here now, renewing Judaism, we have suffered an incredible loss. One of our birds, the twin bird, has died, and on its wings come us. And having survived this loss, we know that we are never going to be the same. When we have come to consciousness, we know that we are inalterably changed by this sacrifice. Our twin soul, perhaps the innocence in us, or the people that we had to leave in order to be where we are now, is gone. We are marked. And so the Torah tells us in its deep wisdom that our wings are dipped in the blood of our twin soul. That blood is on our wings as we soar. But we do soar. And we are lifted off into the fields to fly freely. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.